Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Tiffany Yu, welcome to Inside Out. Thanks for having me, Billy. Yeah, I'm so excited. And so, so to get started, I want to share a quote. The work of a mature person is to carry grief in one hand and gratitude in the other and to be stretched large by them. How much sorrow can I hold? That's how much gratitude I can give. If I carry only grief, I'll bend towards cynicism and despair. If I have only gratitude, I'll become saccharine and won't develop much compassion for other people's suffering. Grief keeps the heart fluid and soft, which helps make compassion possible. Francis Weller. What does that quote mean to you and why does it hold so much meaning for you? Wow. You know I love that quote. I think I spent so long sitting in the depths of my grief and thinking that that was the only place that I could be. So if your listeners are new to my story, I was involved in a car accident at the age of nine where I not only became disabled, but I also lost my dad. And I've been doing a lot of work over the last couple of years to really explore what I guess I'll call it like compounded grief looks like the grief of the changes in my body and my relationship to it, the grief of losing my childhood and the grief of losing a parent. I sat in those depths of grief for a really long time. And when I discovered that quote, actually earlier in this pandemic, it literally just felt like a light bulb moment to me because if I had sat in that space for such a long period of time, then I had the capacity to really sit in the beauty of joy and feeling love and feeling gratitude. So thank you for sharing that quote. Well, no, thank you. I actually never heard the quote before I heard you say it. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing your story. So let's talk about origin stories a little bit and the power of them and specifically disability origin stories. You mentioned this date. You didn't say the date, but I know it was November 29th, 1997. And that date will forever be imprinted on your life. Why is it that disability origin stories specifically are so important to not only to know, but to, to share and to remember? Yeah, I think the root of this really comes down to stereotypes. And I've been doing a lot of work thinking about how oftentimes as disabled people, we are objectified. So we are either objectified to be very inspirational stories, or we, we are objectified to be seen as the victim of our circumstance. And the reason why I want to bring up stereotypes is because it's one way that one of the many ways that identity groups are dehumanized, right? By saying all of us can only be this one story. And so I became really fascinated by disability origin stories because they added so much more color and context to a person's story rather than just their diagnosis. So I just love the idea of origin stories because my story isn't just about becoming disabled at the age of nine. And my story isn't just, oh, Tiffany has a paralyzed arm. It's Tiffany was a kid. Tiffany had all of these hopes and dreams. Again, I've been spending a lot of work kind of backtracking to think about who was this nine-year-old Tiffany? What did she want? What did she love doing? What were her favorite stuffed animals? Like, what was she wearing? Who were her friends, right? Because I'm reading a book right now called The Body Keeps the Score, and it talks about how trauma gets stored in your body if you don't allow yourself to complete the stress response cycle. And so as a nine-year-old kid, the reason why trauma is trauma is like we don't know how to cope. 
at that particular point in time. And because I didn't give myself space, there was a period of time, and this book talks about it, where a lot of people who go through traumatic experiences don't remember a lot. And this is a little bit of a random story, but I recently reconnected with someone who's a close friend of mine from high school. And I graduated from high school about 15 years ago. And we caught, got into a Zoom call because that's where we are right now in the pandemic. <laughs> and he said, Tiffany, I hung out with you every single day and I didn't know about the car accident and I didn't know about your arm. And I had kind of forgotten that high school period. I mean, some of us may want to forget other things about high school, but it made me realize wow, I had this first disability or disability origin story in 1997, right? November 29th, which is actually the day after my dad's 49th birthday. So my dad was 49 for a day. So not again, like the origin story is like, I'll never forget that date. It's tied to a birthday. It's tied to Thanksgiving. It's tied to a holiday and a celebration of birth that was supposed to mean other things for me. And over time, right, coming back to that Francis Weller quote, over the past two years, I feel like I've had really significant shifts in terms of looking at November 29th, 1997 as loss, as grief, but rather everything that I gained and the gift that grief actually provided me and how grateful I am to have been able to have that experience. And even now looking, I've been talking a lot about like my relationship with my parents, my dad who's no longer living and my mom who is living. And my relationship with them is actually growing and evolving as well, right? So my relationship with my dad didn't end on November 29th. Now in 2021, I feel very connected to him through nine-year-old Tiffany. My dad loved riding bikes. I loved riding bikes. I loved rock climbing. He loved adventure. Like we love nature. My mom, not so much. But um, <laughs> so that's why I think origin stories are really important because they just provide a little bit more color. Like hopefully your listeners now know a little bit more of who this young girl was. And and that the story about reconnecting with my high school friend, I think also highlighted, there's just a period of darkness where she wasn't willing to acknowledge what had happened and, and validate that story. Thank you so much for sharing. And Tiffany, your story especially touches me as a father with one child who's nine years old. Hmm. I looked at him today and I, I, I reflected on your story. As you know, I, as you know, I take a lot of pride in, in learning about the person that I'm going to be meeting with. You and I have had our Zoom you know, a couple months ago now, and I got to hear your story for the first time. But I just want to say thank you so much for, for sharing. And I know in a minute, we're going to get into this second origin story, which I know is equally as important because you, for many years, about 12 years, you kind of hid that this happened. And I know that death and disability and trauma, they're stigmatized by society at large, but to your own, you know, your own words, even more so in Asian, in your culture, right? You're Taiwanese and product of, uh, and Vietnamese and, and Vietnamese as well. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And you've talked about how culturally this is subdued. This is suppressed. It's almost taboo to talk about these things. And so I know stories like you going to the, uh, to the gym, even as, as a kid in school. And, you know, you'd have a note every year that you would share with the gym teacher. And it was like torture for you to do that. And you, you'd say your dad was away on a trip instead of saying what had actually happened. You would wear long sleeves to hide your disability. And, and in a sense, you made yourself invisible. And then the fascinating thing to me is where you're at today and how you're able to tell the story. I mean, I got chills just thinking about it. Before we get into your second origin story, I want to talk about this intersection between your own cultural upbringing, your disability, and how those two intersect and how you think about them today as you reflect and all of the work that you've done to really understand everything that's happened in your life so far. Yeah. Wow, Billy. I, I just appreciate the amount of research, the amount of research you've done. And I first want to acknowledge, I, I now have a lot of friends who have nine-year-old kids and when I meet their kids, I am in disbelief that what happened to me did. Because you see, nine, when you're nine years old, you have enough fully formed thoughts to start making sense of the world around you and start having your own opinions and start yeah. dreaming, yeah. right? Totally. And yeah, it's it's been a little bit surreal for me to meet to meet nine to meet nine year old kids. Now, to answer your question. So as you mentioned, I'm the youngest of four, I should also include that as well, of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And 
so much of, I think, our immigrant origin story. Once upon a time, I was like, I should just start a podcast that's called Origins because I just think like all of these origin stories are so fascinating. But part of the reason of wanting to come over here is wanting to fulfill some version of the American dream. And for my parents, it was having kids, you know, carrying on the lineage. It was owning a home. It was creating a life here where we belong. And I wanted to bring up this where we belong because in the context of many of us who are Asian American, we have fought for so long to not be seen as perpetual foreigners. And in the context of everything that's happening with current events, we're seeing it blasted in our face of people reminding us that we don't belong here. And me having been born here, I'm like, so then where do I belong, right? And even in my journey of creating diversibility, everything that I've done with my life is a desire to find a sense of belonging or to help empower other people to find that for themselves as well. So just wanted to add in that little tidbit. But but yeah, I, I, I will say that probably about two years ago, I started doing a little bit of research as to what it meant to be to sit at the intersection of being Asian and disabled. As you reflected back to me, death, disability, and trauma were seen as, you know, by some old adage as your something was wrong with your family. And so much of how I viewed disability was influenced by how my mom saw it. So much of how I, right? Because we always, at least for me as a nine-year-old girl, I looked to my parents, who was my leadership, as to how I should be acting and how I should be, be behaving. And I always say this whenever I talk about my mom. My mom is a hero. She raised four kids on her own. We're all college educated. We're all still alive in our 30s. She now has grandkids. So, um, okay. but I also I also want to share that no one gives parents a rule book to say, if your kids are in this traumatic car accident where you lose your other co-parent, <laughs> here are all the things that you should do, right? So my mom was acting with what she knew made the most sense to her, which is I should try to hide anything that could be seen as shameful. and move about the world with a narrative that everything is okay. And to bring that back to me and the body keeps the score and trauma in the body, this is the reason why I made myself invisible for 12 years. So much, anytime it came to my arm, the narrative was always about fixing. So not only did I hide my arm and wear long sleeves all the time and not even use my voice to hand that note to the PE teacher every single year, the only thing I knew how to do was how could I make myself look more non-disabled so that I'm not causing shame in my family unit? But what it ended up doing was just amplifying and compounding shame within myself. Everything about my existence, or at least how I saw it, to my mom, I was just like the epitome of shame. And again, so much of the work I've been doing over the past year is, let me think about all of the areas of my life that I felt like I had shame or I still have shame. And how can I shed a light on them so that I don't let that have power over me anymore? Because it really did have a detrimental impact on my mental health. I went around, you know, everyone is like, Tiffany, your smile is so great. But I literally went around for 12 years being like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And so when I said that, I was saying that with a smile on my face for your listeners who can't, who can't see the video. But that's a really hard place to be as a kid who is not having the space to breathe, like to give breath to something that she, you know, like one of the other things that kind of baffles me about this car accident is that me and my sister, who was also in the car and one of my brothers, we saw what happened. We were there moments before my dad passed away and we couldn't actually, interestingly enough, I've never talked to my siblings, my siblings who were in the car with me. I've never talked to them about that, about, you know, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? Mm. Have you spoken to them since, or when you say, or when you say that, do you mean you immediately didn't talk to them about it? So now it's been, what is this? 2021 will be 24 years since the car accident. We still haven't talked about the car accident as a family. And I will highlight, and maybe you found this in your research as well. I, a couple years ago, I, I got interviewed for a piece in the Huffington Post called what it's like to be Asian and disabled in America. And I remember getting interviewed by Wendy Liu, who wrote the piece. And it was so cathartic because I had never been able to talk about this intersection before because 
my family's never talked about the car accident. And in me creating diversibility, there was a part of this that was my healing journey, right? This journey to just belong. And a couple of years ago, right before I turned 30, so we're recording this like right around the time I'm about to turn 33, right before I turned 30, I went on a trip with my mom. And this is a pub, all of this is public. And my mom said that she was ashamed. She was ashamed that I wasn't still working in investment banking. She thought the work that I did with diversibility was monkey business. And she just wanted me to go back and get a real job. And for someone who gave me life, right, that just broke my heart. Mm. It was also not surprising, though. We have a little bit, you know, within Asian cultures, there is this tough love, which is, you know, think it like my mom grew up during a war. She was in it. Right. And that intergenerational trauma that that does pass through, but it was this kind of no nonsense, like you got to figure it out. And there's a story I'm remembering from my rehabilitation period. So I was in the hospital for three weeks and then I had to be homeschooled for four months because I also shattered a couple bones in my leg. And my family ended up relocating my bedroom to the living room so I wouldn't have to navigate stairs, but no one wanted to help me with my bedpan. I needed to figure out how to get to the bathroom by myself. And I remember telling someone this story and they were like, Tiffany, that's so sad. But what it also taught you to do was just how to be, how to learn like that the world might treat you this way too. And so much of the work I do is, you know, disability is really a function of how our society treats those of us who have bodies or minds that are different. But right now, many of us are still sitting in these antiquated models of disability where we think it's up to the disabled person to fix themselves, right? That's that's what we call the medical model. That's the model I grew up with and that my mom imparted on me that it was surgeries and physical therapy and uh, progressive treatments and potentially stem cell thing and muscle transfers. And ultimately, I didn't do any surgeries, but that was the whole thinking, which is what's the next progressive treatment that's going to be happening for brachial plexus injuries so that you can be more normal again. And so much of what I talk about now is, you know, when people talk about normalizing things, I heard Jennifer Brown, who's another person I respect, she said, instead of using normalized, can we use usualize? <laughs> and I was like, the language we use is so fascinating. So so I'll just pause there. I know that was a lot, but I'm still learning what it means to be Asian in the context of, of my disability and also doing a lot of unlearning that even though there are these antiquated tropes around disability, I'm sitting in both of them. I'm sitting in conflicting views where my disability oh. side says I want to be proud and my Asian side says that's so shameful. Don't talk about it at all. So fascinating to dissect and think about. I'm really glad that you prefaced your thought before about this sense of belonging, because I think a lot of this ties back to this notion of fitting in. And if I'm putting myself into your mom's shoes, as you said, she's seen what was modeled for her. And not only that, now she's in a new country. She herself wants to fit in. She wants her family to fit in. She wants it's all coming from a place of love and support and wanting to be there for you. But it's as we probably can, it's misguided because of what we now know uh, is suppressing, you know, you being able to to share and have the openness to, to be pr- proud of your disability, which I know today you are. And so that brings us to this second origin story, which was October 22nd, 2009. And so tell me about that. What transpired to allow you to shed the invisible Tiffany to become the visible Tiffany. I'd, I love these dates. Yeah, dates dates mean a lot to me. So, so leading up to October 22nd, I was a summer intern in investment banking at Goldman Sachs. And I named the bank, maybe I should just say I worked at a bank, but I named the <laughs> bank because it, it actually played such a pivotal role in terms of how I viewed my disability. So I'll just share a brief story and then that will lead up to October 22nd. So over the summer, the people that I worked with would provide feedback to the recruiters And you could then go in for office hours to receive the feedback. And I had a tough summer. As the daughter of Asian immigrants, you know, and and we we are realizing that the model minority is a myth, but I feel like so much of what I uh, tried to achieve was to try to fit into my mom's mold of being this model minority. So anyway, so I had this internship at banking and I went in and I, not only was I critical of my, yeah, I was just so critical of myself at the time. So I went in and I was having a tough summer. And Jenny, who was the name of the recruiter, Jenny provided me with my feedback. 
And as I walked out of there, she said, hey, Tiffany, I want to let you know that you don't need to have a chip on your shoulder. You deserved your place here. And when she said that to me, I've never been called out before. Or before that point, I had never been called out. But here was someone that I really respected because Jenny had actually been my recruiter, you know, even before I got the internship. So she had known me for a, for a long period of time or for a longer period of time. She was calling me out. She was saying, Tiffany, you're going about like you have a chip on your shoulder, like you didn't deserve your place here. And maybe it's impacting how you show up in your work. And I mentioned being called out and no one likes being called out, of course. But honestly, it was the first time that I felt like I was seen. I was seen not only as like professional Tiffany who like has this dream of being an investment banker, but like disabled Tiffany who has this dream of wanting to be an investment banker. And Jenny knew about my story as well and knew, you know, there were still a lot of unfinished parts of how I felt about it because up until that point, I really only told people about my arm on a very limited need to know basis. I mean, I like very limited need to know. Otherwise it was just hiding. And if people saw my hand, I literally wouldn't even tell them. They would just stare and, and I would just look at them blankly because I didn't have the words for it either. But summer of 2009, I felt really, I felt seen for the first time. And I had someone say, hey, Tiffany, what it looks like you are doing is playing into a victim narrative that you don't deserve the opportunity that you're being given now. And I walked out of that summer internship, and sometimes I joke about this, but I walked out of that summer internship really thinking they didn't care how many arms it took to put the pitch book together or to get the financial model done. It just needed to be done at Monday at 9 a.m. And if I did it with octopus, eight octopus arms or my toes or one arm or no arms, you know, they just needed the book. And it really started the way that Jenny spoke to me, which was, you know, she saw me as a peer. She said, hey, I see your potential as much higher than where you're operating right now. And then what I saw happen during my internship, which is I did deliver, right? I ultimately did get a full-time offer and returned uh, returned there full-time. That was the next light. That was the next uh, light bulb going off saying, hey, what would it look like if more disabled people we stopped counting ourselves out of opportunities because we gave ourselves a disability discount. And again, I don't want to diminish the fact that the reason why disability is disability is it does impact parts of our lives, right? We have to do things differently. Billy, you've seen my TikTok, like a couple of my TikToks are showing how I do things with one hand and they look different. But again, I'm still opening the jar. I may do it with my feet. I'm still putting up my hair. I may do it with my feet, but like my hair is in a ponytail and the jar's open, right? So it's like, how can we look at the output rather than the way we go about doing it, right? And, and that's where we caught where we get caught in these what's normal narratives, right? Is that ultimately the end effect is the same, right? The wheelchair user got into the building, I opened the jar, my hair's in a ponytail, but maybe the way that I did it was different, but does that really matter? So that was a little bit of a long-winded story, but I thought it was it, it was important context to come to this October point. So fast forward to October. October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And at my university at the time, they were looking at launching a disability study certificate. So they decided to have a student panel. And I had never, again, I had never really talked about my disability before. And I got invited onto the student panel alongside a, uh, a really two friends of mine. One was the president of Best Buddies, which is a club that matches non-disabled people with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, and uh, someone named Taylor Price. And Taylor uh, is a wheelchair user who actually got into an accident the summer before he started at university. I think it was a diving accident. So here we were all in this panel, and it was the first time I ever shared the story of the car accident publicly with a bunch of people I didn't know. And I always remember that date, not because it's necessarily when I went from not being proud to being proud, but it was the beginning of the journey to say, this story is real and it's valid and it matters. And how can I view myself as the hero or heroine in the context of this story? And that's the beginning of, you know, now, now we're 12 years later of Tiffany becoming real, Tiffany becoming proud. Mm, okay. Thank you so much. So, wow. Okay. So one of the things that 
uh, I'm thinking of right now is this idea of we'll go back to you being at Goldman and and you know at Goldman Sachs you're you're doing what not only maybe you want but your family wants you know that that career path and the fascinating thing is that they didn't treat you special they didn't say because you have a disability and maybe I'm wrong about this but tell me if if I am um it didn't seem that way based on what you've described and they didn't pity you either in any way shape or form so how did that experience inform you know your who you are today because it sounds to me like it was formative in many ways and it gave you at least a, a a really good perspective on how you wanted to be treated which is like anybody else uh regardless of disability it was formative which is why i brought up the story and uh i always laugh a little bit well first of all i, I like telling people that once upon a time i was a banker <laughs> you know so <laughs> I, I think most of what people see now is tiffany the disability advocate and the social impact entrepreneur which i'm very proud to be in but i definitely wouldn't be here if i hadn't done that internship so one of the interesting things that did happen while i was at goldman was everyone got like an ergonomic review of their workstation and so the ergonomic person came to, to mine and, you know, I'm, I'm petite, I'm, I'm five feet tall. So I got a footstool and, uh, and then she, she, uh, and then I told her about my paralyzed arm and she asked if I needed speech to text or anything to make that better. But I just, I think what I want to highlight about that experience is everybody got the ergonomic assessment, right? And one of the things that we, that I talk a lot about in my work and many other disability advocates do as well is uh, Alice Wong and a couple of other disability advocates started a hashtag called access is love. And even in the context of the pandemic, right, we, if we're hosting a Zoom call, oftentimes we'll say, you know, uh, what's a good time when your kids aren't on a call or your partner isn't in another meeting or your dog isn't barking, you know, and so it's like access, when we usualize access, it makes it so that I don't feel like I'm getting special treatment. And and again, I, I want to highlight that, you know, certain disabled people need certain types of accommodations and that's okay too, right? So really, again, I want to come back to this idea of ultimately it was the output that mattered, right? It was the impact that mattered. Um, how I did it didn't really matter because I was given everything that I needed in order to succeed to make, to be able to get you that book at 9 a.m., right? And so if we think about this in the context of people who have other types of disabilities, Right. Ultimately, if they're providing the output, then and we're providing them the accommodation or the access that they need in order to be the most successful to get you what you need, the pitch book at 9 a.m., then why does that in between matter? So, again, I'm not trying to like diminish. I don't want to like diminish the disability experience and the fact that I have had to learn how to do things a lot of different ways. But I think oftentimes we get so caught up in the how is this going to work? You know, I, I mean, I have a lot of conversations with people around disability employment and how we can start to close the disability employment gap. But I will say back to your question around kind of Goldman being a formative experience. It was. And I think the reason why it really shaped the work that I do now is because they, while I was there, they saw me for my potential and they saw that I wasn't operating there. And now in so much of what we do at Diversability, it's, you know, and even if I think about October 22nd, 2009, I was not ready to share, to share my story. You know, Billy, you and I met through Clubhouse. We talk a lot about trauma dumping. I mean, I think that I was still I was still in my story and not on my story, as Andy Henriquez would say. In 2009, I was sharing that story from a place where I was still very hurt and in pain and hadn't processed a lot of things. And I'm grateful that the people around me gave me the space to do that. And then I'm also grateful for my professional support systems and therapy to continue to do that work as well. But that summer internship just really made me realize I'm not showing up who I want to be. I know I can be the light that I want to be. Yeah, you will. And you are. And at the time, you may have been speaking from the wound as opposed to speaking from the scar, which we talk about is the nuance between trauma dumping and sharing uh, an event that's happened that is speaking of the experience instead of being immersed in it. And, and as I think about your journey, it takes you from victim to survivor to thriver. And now you're empowering other people to have similar journeys of getting to a place where 
you embrace your disability. And I'm curious if you could single out one factor, one thing that allowed you to have that journey, what would that one thing be? So Brene Brown says that shame festers when it's rooted in secrecy, silence, and judgment. And I will say, so in 2019, I got, I got my splint and maybe you've seen some videos of it, but, but I wear, I wear a wrist splint, which the formal term for it is known as a anti-claw orthosis in case anyone was curious. And when I got the splint, it didn't have any artwork on it. And I was kind of sad because the splint looked the exact same as it did in 1997 when I got my original splint. And when I told one of my friends, he was like, Tiffany, let's like, I have an artist friend, let's deck it out. And what's interesting about my journey from 2009 until now is from 2009 until now, 2009 was the beginning of Tiffany owning her disability narrative. But I don't think it was until 2019, 2018, 2019 timeframe where Tiffany went on a journey to love her body, love the physical manifestation of her disabled body. So the artwork on the splint is drawn by a local artist, her name Forrest Stearns. And the I had never met him before. So my friend handed him my blank splint and said, my friend Tiffany is amazing. Can you draw a girl hugging an elephant and write the word proud on there somewhere? And so there's the girl and her arm is sprawled across one of the Velcro straps and she's hugging the face of an elephant. And to me, the elephant, I always felt like my arm was the elephant in the room growing up. And he ended up writing the word proud on, on one of the Velcro straps as well. And when I got this piece of art, the splint that now became a piece of art, I like could not wait to tell people about it because it was so meaningful to me. And over the past two years, so now the artwork's become a little bit faded. I have a new splint uh, that is going to get some new artwork on it. But getting the splint back in 2019, I got a July, I don't remember the exact date, July 2019, I got the splint with the artwork back. And that became the journey of Tiffany embracing her paralyzed arm as part of her body because I spent a really long time neglecting my arm, loving my story, but neglecting my arm, if you can kind of see the nuance there. And so I, I think this whole thing is a journey, right? We started this conversation with that Francis Weller quote, which is, even if I look at it over the past two years, because I became so okay with my disability story, now I wanted to explore what does my relationship with my dad look like? He was part of this story as well, right? And then over the past two years, what is Tiffany's relationship with her paralyzed arm, which is the remnants of nine-year-old Tiffany in this 33-year-old woman's body, what does it look like to bring that back in and love it and be so grateful that this is the gift that the universe gave me? So yeah, so I will say turning something. So the reason why I brought up Brene Brown and and this idea of shame is, I just I'm just tired of shame. <laughs> I'm tired yeah. of society telling me that so many aspects of my story and who I am as a disabled woman of color I should be hiding or trying to change. And so to be able to attach art to it and something so meaningful that I can't wait to tell everyone. I used to call my splint the middle finger to the world, uh, <laughs> but but it's almost to say, hey, my hand looks different. And for a long time, the world and myself told me that people shouldn't see it. But I had this realization over the past year that if my hand wasn't supposed to look like this, if my body wasn't supposed to be this way, then the universe wouldn't have given it to me. And, you know, I've been active on TikTok over the past year, which has also played a pretty formative role in this journey, which is I started showing my hand on video, which if you look at my, you know, if you look at Instagram, if you go back into the, into the archives, I never really showed my hand. I had been so conditioned to put it aside or put it behind my back. And now on TikTok, I was like, here's my hand. And I got a lot of comments. And this is why I had this realization that like the universe gifted me this body. A lot of people were like, why does your hand look like that? And I was like, look like what? Uh, again, using these in, as an opportunity to have a conversation. And they're like, I've never seen a hand that looks like that. And I'm, then I was like, now you have, right? And so getting a lot of th those comments made me really realize, wow, how many of us have been conditioned to, to think that a body looks a certain way, right? And my body looks this way because this is, and I'm not a religious person, but I believe in the universe. But the universe right. said, 
Tiffany's arm is going to look like this. And it does. So here you go. You know, what other questions do you have? So instead, I think, you know, and, and I notice even my, in my response, I see a little bit of like playful nine-year-old Tiffany coming out being like, here's my arm. Like, what else do you want to talk about? You know, so yeah, for me, and again, back to this Francis Weller quote, it's like, how can we bring in all aspects of this story where part of it is serious, you know, like I want to eradicate ableism, but part of it is also fun. This is my body. I love my body and it's taken me on so many adventures around the world. Well, your body's your body and your journey is your journey. The 12 years that you had, now you could reflect and say, well, I wish I'd done this or I could have done, but it is the journey. And that journey has helped prepare you to be the person you are today. You may say it looks like it's your middle finger. I think it's your cape. I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's your yeah. cape. And, and, and I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I've thought multiple times that you really, you're, you're a superhero, like, like literally. And, and as I think about what you're doing now as a disability advocate, you wear it as a badge of honor. Uh, you have pride in your disability. And yet the reality is society, as you've mentioned, they have these antiquated views of what disability looks like. Yeah, there's over what a billion people that have some form of disability, 70% of which are invisible, which is fascinating in and of itself. So I wonder, as an advocate and as somebody that's put so much time and thought, and it's been such a part of your journey, what is the message that you would want to share to the world about disability? If you could say there's one defining message that would be most impactful, what would that message be? So hard. I get I get some version of this question all the time. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give you two. One is how can we create a world where people don't need to feel shame about who they are? Right? If I think about my personal my personal mission statement, it's how can I lead by example to encourage others if they need the permission to be unapologetically themselves? And I just, you know, you talked about it being a journey, right? And I respect and acknowledge and honor my journey that it's been over the past 24 years. But I just wish nine-year-old Tiffany could have been nine-year-old Tiffany coming out of that, coming out of the hospital in, two, in, two, in 2008, you know, after the accident. But instead she felt like, and you talk about the cape, right? I feel like the cape originally started as, as this very heavy weighted blanket, like a little bit too heavy of a weighted blanket that I was carrying around that I didn't, it was too big for me, right? It was too, I mean, this is why we call it trauma. Like it was too much for me to bear that then as I grew into my body, then became this cape, right? I love, I love that imagery. So, so that's the first message is I feel like, and I have noticed this on Clubhouse as well, is that if I share a little bit about my disability, the assumption is shame. And so oftentimes I'll get, you know, I've, I've gotten responses and, if, and we know people are well-intentioned in these cases, intention doesn't matter as much impact and outcome do, but they'll say things like Tiffany, your smile's so beautiful. So you're not disabled in that regard. Or they'll say, Tiffany, you're not disabled. You're differently abled. And what that, what comments like that are reinforcing to me is that when I say disability, even if I say I'm proud to be disabled, people assume shame. Right. And even we see a lot of disability advocates go around with this narrative as well to say, I'm disabled, but blah, blah, look at all the things I can do. Right. Instead, I'm challenging people to say, I'm disabled and look at all of the things I can do. Right. The but versus the and the despite versus the the with or because of. So that's the message is I don't want anyone to feel shame about who they are. And it pains me, right? You mentioned 70% of disabilities are not visible. There's a very large portion of that group where it is so exhausting for them to show up as non-disabled, to pass as non-disabled because either people don't believe them, you know, and that's so thing. So that's the first message. The second message is, and this one is a little bit more tactical, is I often think about, I, I reflect on my own professional journey. I started at Goldman and I have very fond memories of every place that I've worked. And work is where we spend the most of our time. It's where we have, uh, where we start to build our social networks. And it's where we feel like we're adding value and contributing to society. And if I look at the statistics, the unemployment numbers for disabled people have been pretty much the same since 1991. And the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, which technically prohibited discrimination on the basis of disability in employment. 
So even with a law, we do not see it implemented in the same way, you know, as we're coming into 2021, where, you know, the unemployment for disability is the highest it's been in seven years, a million disabled people have lost their jobs, according to research, again, where we spend the most of our time, where we create our social networks, and where we feel like we're adding value to society, we've stripped that away from so many disabled people to feel like they're contributing, which then gets many, so many of us caught in this narrative that we are not inherently valuable and worthy as people. So the message there, I just, I did want to provide some context. The message there is if anyone of your listeners is in a capacity to hire disabled people or influence the conversations around getting more disability, disability represented uh, within your workspaces, that to me, I think will change a lot in terms of how not only we as disabled people view our disabilities, but one of the things I go around telling people is that by me working at Goldman and all of my colleagues, like everyone who interacted with me became better because they knew how to interact with Tiffany, who has a paralyzed arm, which then they can carry, you know, a lot of us are not at Goldman anymore. They can carry into their spaces and learn how to adapt and be a better ally to their disabled colleagues as well. And ultimately, we're all just trying to learn how to be better to each other. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. One is this whole concept of what people disclose at work, what they feel comfortable disclosing. And also, as you said, there's there's laws. You don't, you know, as, a, as an employer, you, you are limited. And I think that's important. At the same time, the fascinating thing and the weird dichotomy here is that embracing your disability and being open enough to share it probably psychologically allows you to feel more comfortable. And so how do we find, because it's like, we don't want people to feel shame. And I love that. I, I, I think that's so important because shame is, it's debilitating in and of itself. And so how do we find the balance as employers between empowering human beings who are disabled to be able to own that and, and share it in a way and, and thrive just the same as anyone? And it's in, to your point, it's the output that matters. It doesn't matter how you're doing it. If you're putting on your necklace with one arm, as you do in your amazing uh, TikTok video with like hundreds of thousands of views... <laughs> But in the workplace, it's almost like it reinforces this pushing it down, pushing it down. No, you have a problem because you have a disability. You, you, you shouldn't mention that because you have a disability. You should be ashamed of that. And it almost perpetuates what you're, I think, so beautifully showcasing, which is we shouldn't. And when I say we, collectively, we as society and you know, especially the billion disabled people, um, you're you're an advocate for letting it shine through. So I don't know. That was a lot, but I'm curious. What yeah, your no, it's that's the million dollar question, right? And it and it's so tricky because so uh, yes. Denise Hamilton, another person, another you know Clubhouse Power user, she does a lot of DEI work, and when she goes in to talk to her clients, she says, "I'm not here to change policy. I'm here to change hearts and minds," and that really resonated with me because again, right, we've had policy, ADA protecting our rights for 30 years. But we're not, we haven't yet gotten the hearts and minds over the hump. So what I mean by that is, and I'm going to cite an Accenture study that came out in 2020 that said that 77% of disabled employees and 80% of disabled leaders are not transparent about their disabilities at work. Four out of five disabled people are not transparent about their disabilities at work, right? So that is showcasing we are missing a level of psychological safety in these workspaces for disabled people to be fully themselves, right? And coming back to your whole thing around shame, it's debilitating, not being able to be yourself at work, that's debilitating. And that's going to impact, you know, and again, I go back to Jenny's feedback for me, it's going to impact your work and how you show up. And it just impacts so many things to not feel safe. And I've been thinking a lot about, so this, I will highlight that the study does highlight eight ways through a series of case studies, eight ways that different companies have been able to create a little bit more of a better workplace for disabled people. So whether it's equitable pay or flexible work schedules or paid time off if you're a caregiver, yeah, highly recommend going to check out the report. Implementation though, like de definitely needs to happen. But, but what I will say, and one of the things I'm learning is one of my signature workshops that I do, the theme of it is ending discrimination starts with self-reflection. 
And a lot of people aren't willing to confront the fact that many of us hold ableist beliefs. I still have a lot of internalized ableism. I look back at old videos. You probably watched my one of my TED Talk videos where I called my hand my funny hand. Like if I described like now I I, I mean I I don't that's what I called it at the time. But if I called if you called any part of your body like your funny face or your funny you know like that's a very unkind way for me to talk about my body, right? So even I'm learning and unlearning how to talk about my relationship to my disability. So yeah, so a lot of people have watched that video where I call it my funny hand. And I'm like, I actually don't see, I see it as my beautiful hand, as part of my body. That's beautiful. That's a gift. You know, so um, so we're all learning together. So ending discrimination starts with self-reflection. And what I mean by that is not only are we unwilling to confront our own ableist beliefs. And so when I run this workshop, there's a series of questions that I, first of all, we set the intention. This is a space for you to say the wrong thing so that we can all learn and get it right together. But one of the questions in there is think back to a time where you saw someone who had a very visible disability and did it make you feel uncomfortable and why? And the ongoing suggestion that most disabled people will say is that if you have questions, please ask them as long as they're not intrusive, you know, you know, as long as they're related to whatever they're relevant to the whatever the the situation in the context is. But what is happening is people aren't asking questions. Non-disabled people are still so uncomfortable. One of the things that I think is interesting between kids and when kids become adults is kids, we never lose that sense of curiosity, but our desire to ask the question, we lose we lose the ability to think that it's okay to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people, and this is why I said, you know, by having Tiffany in your workspaces, by having disabled people in your workspaces, it makes everyone who interacts with that person better is that the best allies come from proximity. And what I mean by that, I can't, and I can't remember Billy, if you and I have talked about this before, but proximity means, you know, Billy, like, you know, about me putting necklace on, putting a necklace on, you probably know about my dating life. (laughs) Yeah, because watching my TikTok, like, you know, like how I open a jar or how I do certain things one hand, like you've seen, you've seen more of my life than Tiffany has a paralyzed arm, right? And so the proximity is that you, Billy, you and I are friends. And I'm not just a disabled person who's coming in here to be your teachable moment. It's that we've actually created a relationship where I can now come on your podcast and you've done tons of research and you can ask questions that you know, get to the 2.0 of like, where is Tiffany in her healing process? And where, you know, so that was a very long winded answer to say, we do have these stipulations in place that reinforce shame, right? So much of ableism is systemic, right, is rooted in our policy. But they were also put in place once upon a time to protect us. Like one of the policies that is still currently in place is that it's legal to pay disabled people below minimum wage, it's called sub minimum wage. And I don't even know. But once upon a time, literally like no one was hiring disabled people, right? So the sub-minimum wage was put in as a quote unquote incentive. And I think this was passed in like 1934. So it it is a little bit older. (laughs) And there have been initiatives. And I, I, my hope is with this current administration, we will, we will finally eradicate sub-minimum wage. But if we go back to this whole idea of dehumanization of our experience, to say that it's okay to pay a human being below minimum wage, like what type of messaging is that reinforcing for me as a disabled person? So then not only do I internalize that I'm subhuman or I'm continuing to dehumanize, it's telling non-disabled people that, oh, we have a policy in place that says that it's okay for us to treat another human being like this. And I started a series on TikTok where I share literally 15 second bite-sized snippets of how we can be a better ally to disabled people. And my most recent one was, hey, everyone, I want to remind you that disabled people are living human beings who have thoughts and feelings and dreams and goals and inherent worth. Because apparently a lot of people have forgotten that. And I, and I say that like kind of funny, but but there are people who I think because we grow up so deeply entrenched in a medical model or a charity model of disability, we forget, oh, this person next to me, like, has a desire to date, you know, or, you know, loves DIY projects or wants to like loves cooking, you know, and, and we forget about it because all sometimes like we get so clouded that we just see the person's disability. But your question was about work. 
And it was a very heavy question. So I went in all different directions. I just want to acknowledge that there are these nuances. And I know that I am very radically progressive in the way I think about disability. And I do become a little bit curious, you know, when the time comes, if Tiffany decides she wants to go back into corporate or into the startup world or into tech, because I'm here in San Francisco, what that's what that's going to look like. And I think that the underlying narrative that we do tell most disabled people who are going who are going to interview for the jobs is to not not disclose unless accommodation is needed and until the offer is received. And that makes me sad. But it's also there's a question that I brought up yesterday. I said, should entrepreneurs be system builders or system disruptors? And ultimately, what you and I are both talking about is a desire to disrupt the system. You know, how can we have disabled people just show up fully, unapologetically disabled as themselves and get that job offer and totally rock it, you know, in in whatever career and dreams they have. But we're operating in a system. And what can we do to build within that system? Which is, you know, we have these laws in place that perpetuate that we should be ashamed of our disability. But we also still have a lot of fear and discomfort around disability that we're being told not to disclose unless it's absolutely needed. And we notice that people treat us differently when they see the visible manifestation of our disabled bodies. And my hope is with everything that happened with the Black Lives Matter movement and people being on their own anti-racist journeys and confronting how uncomfortable we feel about talking about racism, that we can then expand that intersectionality to talking about misogyny and talking about ableism and confronting that it is totally okay to feel uncomfortable because those of us who wear, who have multiple marginalized identities have spent our whole lives feeling uncomfortable because we're entering spaces that weren't necessarily made for us. So how can we just share a little bit of the load of discomfort, I guess is what I want to say. Yeah. No, and, and there, I mean, there's so much there, Tiffany. And I, I, I think about this concept of what you said about the hearts and minds and also recognizing that there's a learning process, but maybe more precisely an unlearning process that has to happen uh, as we navigate life and learn. And the hearts and minds, it works in all directions. It's not just uh, hearts and minds of a disabled person. It's the heart, hearts and minds of, of abled people. And so I think to your point, you know, as we look at the landscape from an employer's perspective, they can do things outside of, you know, there's the law and the law that's policy. And let's just set that aside. But what can employers do proactively to create a safe place, to create an environment where people, people do feel empowered to show up as their full self. And one of the big missions that you have is to amplify the voices of disabled people. I want to talk about internal label in a, in a bit, but I, but before we get there, let's talk about this concept of of amplifying voices because I really love Amplified is the name of my club on on Clubhouse. So I'm a big believer in, in the power of amplifying voices. I'm obviously a podcaster, and I believe that through the power of people sharing, the world can change. And there's so many layers to that that we could talk for hours about it. But what is what have you found to be the most successful or the most impactful ways in which you've been able to achieve your mission with diversability and helping people elevate and raise and amplify their voices? Yeah. Th thank you for that question. So, so yeah, diversability's mission is to amplify disabled voices. And the reason why comes back to where we started this conversation, our origin stories are so humanizing and there is a level of vulnerability in them that allows us, and vulnerability is what creates connection. So through my work, there is someone named Dr. Vivian Ming, and she has said that the best way to tackle any type of bias is through real-life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. So I'll repeat that again because I think it's really important. So the best way to tackle any type of bias, and in my case, it's disability bias, the best way to tackle any type of bias is through real-life continuous experiences with people who challenge your stereotypes. So most of the time, that's accomplished through work. Right. What we're realizing is those numbers haven't changed. I, I want to do what I can to change them. But how can I create environments where I'm creating those real life peer to peer interactions between disabled and non disabled people? So for us, you know, now in a pandemic environment that's happening through 
through an online community. But where I saw it to be most impactful pre-COVID was Diversibility, we were really just hosting events. We were kind of, I, I, we were we were a meetup that hosted events everywhere, everywhere that we could. Because what we found was that when we bring people together, you know, you can call them disabled professionals or disabled people and non-disabled people together, we're all just in the same space. Uh, our signature event is called Diversibility Unplugged. And in the past, I would equate them to like a moth storytelling night or, you know, like a mini TED, a mini TED talk where you really get to dig into someone's story for five or 10 minutes. But then afterward, right, it's not a stage and an audience. You get to interact with each other. And one of the things, so part of the reason, part of the reason why I started Diversibility in the first place was I couldn't find anything that was cross-disability. We do include people who have chronic illnesses and mental health conditions because those are disabilities as well. In we try to diversify the type of disabilities you're seeing. Then the second was we really wanted to bring non-disabled people in, but we wanted to bring non-disabled people in, not as volunteers, but as peers. So Billy, I even remember one time Actually, you joined our room on, da- on dating and relationships. Uh, we were hosting a disability room on dating and relationships, and you raised your hand and you asked a question, right? But it wasn't it wasn't framed in the sense of, oh, like I feel really good about myself because I'm volunteering to learn more. It was you, Billy, like genuinely wanting to better understand how you can be a better person to this community of a billion people, right? So that was number two, which is. I don't want I don't want there to be a hierarchy in the relationships that are created here. They really are peer to peer, or I hope that they are. Um, yeah. And then the third was, you know, how can we move away from uh, wanting to be more normal or wanting to fix disability to really celebrating or embracing wherever we are in our disability journeys? You know, so I talk a lot about disability pride. I know a lot of people aren't there yet. The reason why I talk about two disability origin stories is because. I know a lot of disabled people won't get from that first origin story for me was the car accident to that second one of deciding I, I want to own that this is part of my body and this is part of my experience. And I want to explore what it looks like to be proud in this narrative. And a lot of disabled people might not get to that second story. So, so to go back to your question, which is, I really think it's this in-person, this in-person interaction that is becoming the most impactful, right? And so for me and you, Billy, like this is our version of it happening right now. Yeah, We see versions of this happening a lot within our diversity community. And my hope is my vision and my dream, well, my original vision, I think I, looking back at some of my old videos is I want diversity to cease to exist because I want disability to be so usualized in our conversations that we don't need to have a specific place where you go to learn more about our human experiences. Because disability, I would argue, is probably one of the most human experiences. It, it's, very, um, it's very humbling. When, when, you, when we are trying to live in a world that isn't made for us, you know, have you ever thought about using a can opener with one arm? <laughs> that that's something that I learned during this pandemic is is di- is difficult. But anyway, so um, but yeah, and and you know, fort I I want to say like fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how to scale that because I've seen a lot of VR technology come in, but Billy like. Hopefully you like, you'll never forget Tiffany, you know, even if we lose touch or something, because we have, you know, not only are we having this conversation right now, we had many nights on clubhouse. We had a one-on-one zoom chat where you got to dig deeper. Right. And how can we find more people like you, Billy, or more people like me to engage in these types of conversations. And I'm seeing, you know, there's an, there's another person on clubhouse. I really admire named Sophie Barron and she runs. Yes. She runs a community called The Conversationalist, uh, which is primarily Gen Z. But the ultimate premise is conversation is where thing where change starts. Uh, it, it really is because um, and, and I actually had Sophie on my podcast and we we talked through, you know, when we meet someone who maybe has a very different experience than us, what are some of the go to 
the go-to phrases or questions. And for her, she, hers are, you know, thank you for sharing and, and I hear you. And for me, it's tell me more about that. And I think I, I think even if I look at my own journey, that tell me more about that, you know, on, on this journey of looking at nine-year-old Tiffany before the accident, like, tell me more about her, you know, let's look at this period from nine until 17. Tell me more about her. And and that's me reconnecting with my friend from high school, right? And then now 33-year-old Tiffany, like, tell me more about her in relation to the the girl in the hospital bed who was in the wheelchair for four months, right? So yeah, com- conversation and and easier, easier said than done. I, I really think that the way that we make progress, not only from a disability inclusion perspective. But on so many other topics that we seemingly think divide us is by knowing how to have conversations in a better way. And I am still learning. Part of the reason why I started a podcast myself was so that I could learn how to become a better listener <laughs> as well. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so it's that equal. So ultimately, uh, I, <laughs> um, I, I, I think that. And, and we have transitioned our diverse abilities events to a virtual setting. That really is where the magic happens, to be honest. Um, a little bit harder now in the virtual setting, you know, when you've got 45 squares on a screen, we have tried the breakout rooms, but then the breakout rooms, you know, still have 15 people in them. Um, but it's really encouraging, like, hey, if you're a part of this community, definitely connect, you know, slide. We joke like slide into someone's DMs, you know, hop into a call with them, even with Clubhouse, right? I mean, I think like Clubhouse is the non, you know, like diversability to me is like a microcosm of what we're seeing happen on Clubhouse where you have a bunch of people gathering, you start to, you start to get introduced to proximity to people based on the frequency of how much they're showing up in your room and speaking up and raising their hand to then taking that interaction offline, which was you and I connecting, to then bringing it back online, which is us in the context of this podcast right now, so that we can bring this level of proximity that you and I are having to all of your listeners who are listening as well. So um, so that's a great place to start. I mean, we we talk so much about diversifying your feed and following people who have uh, people who are disability advocates or disability organizations. Again, we're not a monolith. So Everything that I've probably said on this podcast, someone will disagree with me on, and that's totally fine. And yeah, part of the way we grow is you have Tiffany's perspective now. Who's the next disabled person that you're going to go listen to their podcast as well? Yeah. And I love that you really highlighted the power of conversation. And, and I was thinking that throughout, even before you really went for that specifically. And I'm a huge fan of Sophie as well. She, I've invited her. She's going to be coming on the show as well. And so thank you so much for, for everything you shared. I want to finish by just doing a, a quick lightning round of some terms that I think would be helpful. So if you could just give me like a, a short synopsis of each of these terms for those who maybe haven't heard of them before, because I think it would be valuable. And the first one is internalized ableism. Mm. <laughs> the, simple, the simple definitions. Well, so ableism is when people and society place value and worth on a person's body and or mind. Internalized ableism is when those of us who are disabled or have a different body and or mind see ourselves as, or like we we discriminate against ourselves, I guess is is the best way to do that. I don't know if that was a good, <laughs> I don't know if that was a good definition. No, it, may, no, it makes sense. Okay. How about this toxic positivity or even internalized toxic positivity? Yeah. Toxic positivity is having zero tolerance for harder emotions and saying it's good vibes and good vibes only. And internalized toxic positivity is not making space for some of those harder emotions or softer emotions, I guess I would call them. And those could be grief, it could be sadness. It could be heartbreak. Okay, I got two more. Uh, chronic exclusion. Wow, these are hard. These are hard. Even though I've said them, I said them a lot in my talk. So, chronic exclusion to me is the death by a thousand cuts. Uh, it is taking microaggressions to the next level by saying that every time Tiffany wasn't picked for a 
sports team during her physical education class still hurts my heart today. The reason why I put chronic in front of that is because when it happens over and over again, it makes it harder to heal and, and work through that. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Okay, so the last one's a fun one. P-F-J. <laughs> good, good. So P-F-J stands for play, fun, and joy. And to me, P-F-J is how Tiffany taps into her inner child. And whether that's whether the manifestation of that is nine-year-old Tiffany, I think that all of us need to find time and make space for your own PFJ. Yes, we do. Well, Tiffany, I want to thank you. I know for anyone wanting to find more, you could go to Tiffany U, that's yu.com. Also, check out mydiversability.com where you can learn more about that incredible organization that you founded. And I know you obviously, we talked about your TikTok. So go check out that TikTok magic. Um, you're also on Clubhouse and, and all over social media. And you could find both all the social media handles uh, on your websites. Where else can they find you? Or where else would you like them to interact with you? Those are all good places to start. And if you follow me, don't just follow me. There are tons of other disabled people to follow as well. So I'm excited to be part of your journey if you decide that's what you want. But I'm also here to serve as a resource for you if there are other people you want to follow on your journey as well. I love it. Well, in closing, I just want to say that you envision a world where everyone is invested in disability, equity, justice, and liberation. And you do that through your mission, which is, as we said, to amplify the voices and to democratize disability, visibility, representation, and access. And you do this by making sure that we're more visible to each other, that we're more visible to others, that we get more disabled people represented at all levels, and that we connect our community to other organizations and companies that are doing incredible work. Thank you for leading by example. Thank you for everything that you've done. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. Tiffany Yu, thank you for being on Inside Out. Of course. Yeah, that was fun.